Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman. Coming up on Fast, the chartmaster says something exceedingly rare just happened in the market. Carter Worth will tell us what it is and how to trade it. Plus, one of our traders just went short this ultimate stay-at-home stock. Why Tim says Netflix is no longer chill. And later, pop the bubbly because the Dow Jones Industrial Average just turned 124 years old today. What is the index in serious need of a makeover? We are breaking down some blue chip Botox straight ahead. But we start off with the reopening rally Rorschach test. We asked you this question. Which did you see today? The Dow closing at its highest level since March 10th, a rally fueled by vaccine hopes and a rotation into banks and industrials, or did you see this? Stocks closing near session lows and the S&P 500 failing to hold its 200-day moving average. Guy Adami, how do you interpret the ink blot? Well, being that I can't see it, is that the guy from Welcome Back, Cotter Mel, or no? That, that Rorschach test guy. I think we're having you know some problems with Guy's uh, audio here. That's mm-hmm. technology for you. So, Tim Seymour, we'll go to you on this. Which uh, inkblot did you see today? I actually heard Guy, and he made a bad joke about welcome back to Cotter. But I, I saw the blot that, that actually had the market closing near its March highs. Um, and, I, and we have a case here where I, I think the, the reopening has allowed uh, people to look at industrial and, and call them value stocks, but the ones that were the most beaten up, uh, and to begin to assess what schedules are going to look like for airlines uh, out through kind of early to midsummer. We, we have no idea, but we also have some sense that uh, the worst case has been largely priced in for a lot of the big industrial names. A, a GM had a big breakout day. Uh, and then you have the banks, which I know we're going to spend some more time on, but, but some sense that both between where the yield curve is maybe at its worst uh, and that the consumer may be better um, is part of that rally. But, but maybe the best part of the rally, frankly, was in some of the beaten up retail stocks. And some of these folks that were being left for dead, uh, maybe they don't make a sustainable rally, but they make for a sense of catch up that I think if you look at how the market performed today, it wasn't growth. It was value. Uh, and that's something that people wanted to see. So my glass is uh, Horshack or Rorjack or whatever, whatever this is. <laughs> now, you guys know you guys know the Rorschach test, right? You show a person yeah, yeah, an inkblot, yeah. you ask them what they see, it reveals their emotional state, perhaps traits about their personality. Uh, Dan Nathan, <laughs> I have a feeling I know which inkblot you see, just knowing you for so long. But go ahead. What would you make of the rally today? Um really unimpressive you know when tim just points to those groups that (laughs) rallied or that closed decently today when you're thinking about retailers you're thinking about industrials you're thinking about some of these transports you're thinking about the banks these were some of the hardest hit groups i would say that the banks are probably the highest quality of all of those and their rally was the most impressive i don't think you can say if you look at maga you look at the nasdaq in general closing down two percent from the morning highs that that's the most disappointing thing given their outperformance But I'll just say this, if you are relying on a consumer-led recovery in the back half of this year or early 2021, you are not paying attention to what's going on. One in five workers are unemployed right now, and they are benefiting a lot of them from $600 more a week in unemployment benefits. That will go away this summer. This is not a consumer. I don't care if it was delevered or this or that or whatever. That's coming back in a meaningful way. So we're going to go from north of 20% unemployment 
to possibly 10%. That's the floor in the back half of this year and probably the floor for much of 2021, double the lows where we were just four or five months ago. I just do not see the consumer coming back in a meaningful way. I see new and different jobs going away in the next year. And I I say this with no glee. It's just sad. I think that the stock market is just dislocated from that economic reality. Karen, what did you make of the action today? I mean, I, I, I understand and, and share Dan's dislocation, except for that the Fed has sort of told us they're going to be there. And it wouldn't be shocking if once some of the, uh, the money runs out, if they reload again. Right. So, I mean, they've told us many times they have a lot of tools left. They're not done. I do think we'll also see Congress do something, some sort of stimulus as well. So if you think that those government, the Fed and the government can sort of uh, get in the way of the gravity of the business cycle, which I do kind of believe, then I reluctantly say, you know, this rally kind of makes sense. If you put on top of that, you see just tons of pictures over the weekend of Memorial Day and like the consumer has been let free. Right. How many places did you see that were full or very busy or, uh, you know, the consumer wants to be out there and wants to spend. And at the moment, even if they're not employed, they do have income. So for the moment, I think we're going to continue to see growth, albeit off a horrific low, horrific low. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't short this market right here. I do think some of the some of the retail stuff will start to see better. We'll have a little more clarity when they report earnings. I think Ralph Lauren reports tomorrow. The stock's probably up, I don't know, 15 percent in the last few trading sessions. So the bar has gotten a lot higher for them. But let's see how bad it actually is. And as you know, and we'll get to it, uh, I am long banks. I'm bullish banks. Right. Uh, I mean, Guy, I think that you have embroidered on a sampler. Don't bet against the consumer that's right next to the lithograph of the ink blot that you have as well in your home. So, uh, you know, what do you make of the consumer at this point? And, and should, if we cannot bank on a consumer who will be opening up their wallets in the coming months, should we uh, be pessimistic about this market rally? Well, you know, 36 million people unemployed before, before anybody ever heard of the coronavirus Consumer debt to GDP was, I think, north of 52 percent, which is historic levels. I mean, you can talk about the consumer's ability to spend, but it doesn't mean they should be spending. I mean, I've said it for a hundred different times. Never bet against consumers want to spend. Should they be spending is another uh, question in and of of itself. I I am shocked that we're here, clearly, because I thought we were going to fail at 2,800 in the S&P. But I believe the market is pricing in just about every potential piece of good news and looking past what's right in front of them. And what's right in front of them is, yeah, we have this reopening. We don't know what's going to happen, you know. And in terms of the market, the market is more expensive now, significantly, by the way, than it was when the S&P 500 is making all-time highs. And that's assuming you have $130 worth of earnings, which I don't think we're going to get anywhere near. Now, the argument is you got to write off this year. I get it. And there's going to be some sort of recovery in 2021, maybe. But I still think that... Um, too much optimism is being priced into this market right now. Here's a hypothetical question, and I'll go to Tim Seymour on this. Um, we've been rallying on, on the hopes Bubba. of a vaccine, hopes of a, of a treatment. What happens if, if tomorrow a company said we have a vaccine that is going to be approved by the FDA and we are going to start distribution of this vaccine and injecting people? Is that a, is that a sell the news event? 
I mean, are we in this stage right now? I guess the question is, are we in this stage right now where it's by the rumor, the rumor of the cure of the treatment? And if we do get a vaccine, that's sell the news. No, it's not sell the news because I, I think there are a number of companies that really were, we, I'm, I've used this metaphor, we're watching an hourglass and watching the sand tick through as, as really to, to kind of count how much or how many months they have left of, of cash flow. So uh, I actually don't think it's an entirely sell the moment. I, I, I do think the other thing we haven't mentioned so far in, early in the show is the, the China factor, which uh, Guy has brought up early. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this show last week talking about it's a major issue for the market because it's a major issue for the economy. Uh, and, and so I, I think there are different things that has the market moving around. And in fact, closing on the lows was as much about China headlines um, than it was, hey, uh, Ken Frazier at Merck, highly, highly credible uh, pharma man who tells us it's not going to happen overnight. Um, I, I think if we got that news that it was happening overnight, I, I think the market would like it. And, and, and I don't think it's, it's going to be time to sell the news. I do think there are a lot of places uh, where, in fact, we, we built in the big fear factor. Uh, and I think that a lot of that uh, has rallied back, especially in some of the big growth names, where I think they could actually uh, give something back. And I think we even saw some of that today. The things that were selling off most into the close and the things that really underperformed, again, was growth. And I think that's where you get a little bit of an exhale. But no, I don't think this market sells on a vaccine. This market wants a vaccine. Karen, same question to you before we get to the charts and Carter. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think Tim just touched on it, that rotation. That rotation will start to really go berserk, the one that started today. Uh, or did, or yeah. I guess, I don't know, found some legs today um, if there were news of a vaccine. All right. Well, the S&P 500, as we mentioned, failed to hold above the 3,000 level today. The chartmaster says something exceedingly rare just happened. That really sounds like Carter, doesn't it? Let's get to Cornerstone Macros. Carter Worth with more. Carter. How... how uh, exciting. Well, actually, that was the title of uh, Monday's report today, and it's about healthcare and the performance of mid-cap versus the index. But let's look at a chart of the S&P. In a way, this was a day for everyone. Uh, bears can call out the big fade, uh, basically closing on the low. Bulls can call out the fact that, of course, we're up again. But what we do know is that the market stopped dead cold to the penny, in fact, at its 150-day moving average and basically never could push higher from there. We also know that it's the same situation where, yes, the market's down now only, what, 7.5% for the year, but the median stock is down almost 14. It's still a party of just a few, uh, and that remains the problem. In any event, what is exceedingly rare is the performance of mid-cap healthcare stocks relative to the S&P mid-cap index. So take a look at the first um, slide here, the second slide, and it's going to show you just the spread, the year-to-date spread. At no time in the history of the data has the spread been this wide, where you've got the, the sector, healthcare, being up uh, 9% plus or minus, and the actual index being down 14, 15, so 23, 2400 base points of spread. Now, take a look at the two charts that uh, depict this. This is a chart. The first one is comparing those two uh, lines. It's the uh, sector itself versus the index, and you see the spread year-to-date. And the next chart, of course, is on a two-year basis. And so one could say, so what? But here's the thing. Um, when this has happened in relation to the large-cap healthcare, it's happened three other times year-to-date, meaning at late May period, where mid-cap healthcare is outperformed large-cap healthcare by as much as a 1,000 basis points, what happens is Going forward, it's actually exceedingly bullish for mid-cap healthcare, remains bullish for 
a large cap, there's a little bit of a, a catch up, even though they don't still outperform mid. Um, and yet the market is tepid. Uh, so uh, an interesting setup, something that's never happened uh, before in terms of spread and uh, something to be watched. Um, the market is tepid. Does that mean that we should extrapolate that you don't believe in this rotation that we've seen, the, the rally in banks today and industrials? Sure. Let, let, let's take a second on that. The, the hope is, right, that the cyclicals come to life and that that means the economy is getting better and people are bracing risk. But what we know is we've already expended a lot of energy at the weekend of the market. Regional banks are up 40, 50 percent off their lows in some instances. So are certain cyclicals. And yet we've had a big move out of all of the stretch tech names. They're right back at former highs, Apple, Microsoft, Adobe. And so at this point, we actually have had quite a big move from some of the beaten up names. And were the rotation really to take force, there's there's too much money at the big end of the market, meaning we know the top five, 23 percent. If you have money actually coming out of the high flyers, there's not enough sponges at the bottom of the market to absorb the money. Very vivid. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth joining us. Um, by the way, we've lost Guy Dunn. We're having a little you know, spotty technology issues today, so Guy's grayed out. Uh, in the meantime, Dan, I'll go to you. What do you think of Carter's charts, his call on health care specifically? Yeah, healthcare is really interesting. I mean, I think that spread is interesting. And we all know that there's tremendous focus from so many different parts uh, of the investment universe on this sector. We're really pinning a lot of the economic hopes in the next 12 months on what these companies are able to do on therapies and on vaccines. So everybody is optimistic about it. I think that's pretty well reflected in the stocks. I look at the IBB, um, you know, that's the ETF that tracks the, uh, the biotech sector. And I say, well, it probably got a little ahead of itself. It broke out um, to a new all-time high. There's a massive double top if you go back to 2015. And then there's probably a level where you can reload and buy that at 120 if you're playing for a lot of these catalysts that you see playing out over the next year, year and a half or so. But here's the thing. I mean, I, I think Carter kind of said this. I think there's a lot of different sectors. I think the broad market, they're probably pricing in a lot of the best case news in the next six to 12 months. So to me, I just don't see any panic to buy here, especially when you see a rejection at a key technical level. I don't want to put too much uh, emphasis on that. But listen, at the end of the day, I think the things that are going to take us higher to his point are going to be the mega caps. And they're obviously pausing right here. All right. Coming up, Merck taking a major step forward in its efforts to combat the coronavirus. The latest on when we can expect a viable vaccine to hit the market. And later, is this the end of the stay-at-home boom? The one stock that may be telling the true tale of the tape. Fast Money's back in two. We have breaking news out of Washington. Kayla tausch has got the latest. Kayla. Melissa, President Trump is taking questions from reporters after an event in the Rose Garden announcing the lowering of the cost of insulin for seniors under Medicare Part D. But President Trump was asked about the economy and specifically about his actions on China in the wake of that uh, national security law uh, that China has introduced related to Hong Kong. President Trump said it's too early to talk about exactly uh, what position the administration would take and how it would respond to that. But President Trump said saying that stay tuned for the next couple of days and that you would hear more on that by the end of the week. On the economy, he said that next year is going to be one of the best years 
ever in the economy after what he is calling this transition to greatness comes fully into fruition. He acknowledges that the data has been and will continue to be bad in the near term, but that the third quarter and the fourth quarter will be a strong rebound, again echoing his belief that there will be a V-shaped recovery in the American economy. He has said this before. We will see exactly how the data bears out, but certainly President Trump, as he is trying to lay the groundwork for his uh, forthcoming uh, election uh, or campaign, rather, that's underway, trying to signal that uh, if you reelect him, Melissa, that the economy will get even better than it was before the coronavirus. Back to you. Kayla, he was specifically talking about the economy and not the stock market. Well, he went on a riff, Melissa, about a very many things to do with the economy and the stock market, but just continuing to hammer home that idea that he believes that once businesses start to reopen, that the economy and the market uh, will continue rebounding and that next year will be, in his words, the best year ever. Mm -hmm. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Guy Dami, I go to you. Um, I'm not sure if you have thoughts about his prognostications, but I, I found much more interesting uh, the teaser that we will get an announcement about the U.S. response to China's actions in Hong Kong by the end of the week. Yeah, and it's something I know, but, and I apologize, my audio went down. I, I'm sorry about that, folks. But, you know, Tim mentioned that we've been talking about the situation with the Chinese. Now with the market you know, basically the highest we've been in a couple months. And I'm sure this comes into the equation. I think President Trump feels he's got some room to play in terms of the rhetoric with the Chinese. So I think it's only going to escalate. I don't think that's market positive. And I'm glad you asked Kayla that question, because the, the chasm between the real economy and the stock market has probably never been wider, and it's going to continue to do so. So you know, when I think when President Trump talks about the economy, he's really talking about the stock market, because as we all remember, three and a half years ago, he talked about the stock market being the report card for his administration. It's extraordinarily important for it to do well. But I think at this juncture, he feels like he has a little wiggle room. All right, let's get to Merck now. Uh, shares getting a pop today on a couple of major developments in the fight against the coronavirus. Meg Terrell just spoke with Merck's CEO. She joins us now with more. Hey, Meg. Hey, Mel. Well, Merck announcing three different moves in the COVID-19 space. One, it's in licensing an antiviral drug from Ridgeback Bio that's in phase one trials and also making deals on two different vaccine projects uh, using technology that it says has been proven in other vaccines. Now, they plan to start human clinical trials with the more advanced of those vaccine candidates within a few weeks, putting that around June or July um, after several companies have already started human trials. And we did talk with Ken Fraser, the CEO of Merck about the kinds of timelines we should expect for vaccine development. And he was a little more cautious than we've heard from other CEOs. Here's what he said. We're going to try to approach this in a very responsible, but also aggressive fashion. So I'm not in a position today to say exactly what the timeline will be. We're going to move as quickly and as responsibly as we can. As you know, clinical trials take a long time. And if you're going to immunize a lot of people, millions, if not billions of people, you're going to have to make sure that you know exactly what that vaccine will do in people and you can essentially ensure the safety of people. 
Mel, of course, this is an important announcement because Merck has so much credibility in vaccine development and also so many resources. We asked him how much they're planning to spend here, how much they're willing to spend, and he said as much as it takes to get a vaccine. Back over to you. Meg, I'm curious if, and I'm asking you to do a little bit of, of tea leaf reading, um, but did you take uh, Ken Frazier's comments as sort of a, a dig on the competition or a dig on some of the smaller companies that have, have not ever Got a, gotten a product across the finish line who are making some pretty bold promises in terms of timelines. I didn't take it as a dig. I, I took it more as sort of a pride in Merck and its history. But he did say one thing that I thought was really fascinating. Sarah asked him about Moderna and the timelines that it's been able to accomplish already in getting into human trials and the forecast it's making about potentially having a vaccine even on an you know accelerated perhaps emergency use time frame by this year and he said one of the benefits to that technology is its speed well Merck is not going for speed here they're going for the best possible vaccine and that was sort of the undercurrent I think in what Ken was trying to to impart with that comment all right Meg thank you Meg Terrell, keeping on top of it for us. Um, Karen Feinerman, we've talked a lot about the hopes for vaccines and treatments and specifically Moderna. Um, would you, I know that you wouldn't invest in a Moderna or anything like that, but would you invest in, say, a Merck based on the hopes of a vaccine? Or are you of the belief that one can develop this vaccine, but the lasting impact on revenues, it won't be there? It will be short-lived. Right. I do sort of think that it will be short-lived. If we think about how much pressure will be on whoever has a vaccine, or who, and there may be very many companies that have vaccines, how much pressure will be on them to deliver it absolutely as cheaply as possible? And so I think Merck has a much stronger, you know, they have, they're not just going to be a vaccine, a COVID vaccine company, right? So uh, I'd feel much safer with them. I feel like Moderna, I mean, I don't know if they bet the company, but the stock seems to feel like they bet the house on a COVID vaccine. I hope that comes to pass, but it might not. I mean, look, this we really haven't seen much news from Moderna in the last, since they priced at, what, 76? Mm-hmm. And the stock going, I don't know where to go out today, 57, 58? Um, although I, 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 could, I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't touch it. Merck, I, yes. Moderna, Moderna's no. stock is below Friday's close. So the Friday before they released the data. So it's sort of, it's given back every single penny of pop that we saw, Dan, that it had for a day or so. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, the the stock market rallied 2% on that news and everybody with their pom-poms came running out. Listen, I want a vaccine as quick as anyone else does, but the news flow since that gap and then that secondary and then the revelation that the CEO is selling stock, every opportunity that he appears to have, he sold tens of... Uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of stock the whole way up. When you listen to a CEO like Ken Frazier talk about timelines and talk about how they're setting their priorities, you say to yourself, why would I ever invest in a company like Moderna when it's in the middle of an absolute frenzy and it appears that they're looking to take advantage of some really um, odd things going on? I'd put my money with a company like Merck that is probably going to do their part in a much bigger fashion when it's all said and done. 
All right, let's stay with the biotech space today. Gilead getting a vote of confidence from analysts at SunTrust, the firm upgrading the stock, raising the price target by 3 bucks to $73 a share. Joining us now is Robin Karnaskis, the analyst at SunTrust, Robinson Humphrey. Robin, welcome to the show. Um, this isn't exactly a, a table-pounding upgrade. I mean, it's to a hold from a sell. And the difference here is that you're actually incorporating uh, numbers from remdesivir, whereas before you had not. Uh, your base case is, is modeling $10,000 per treatment. Who is, who is paying for this? We're trying to understand as a group here on this show um, the sort of pressure that companies may face from governments who will say to companies, you should give this to us at cost during this pandemic. Great. Thanks, Mel. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, experts we've spoken with say it's going to be a balance between public perception, recouping costs, and generate, re- generating revenue for shareholders. But I would argue that $10,000 is not a bad price per course for several reasons. I think the healthcare system can handle it. And currently, um, we would see that the government um, or in Europe, for example, would be paying for it. In the United States, eventually, our, the payer systems and the government would be paying for it. And in some areas, we'd be giving it free at cost. So there's a couple of reasons why we really think the $10,000 course is reasonable. So first, the drug's only going to be given to hospitalized patients. And to date, there's only been about 200,000 hospitalizations of the 1.5 million cases of COVID, and that's declining. So even at $10,000 a course, you say 100,000 people get the drug, it costs your system about a billion dollars. But it's saving you about $3 billion in hospital costs because every day a patient is in the hospital. Remember, this drug reduces your hospital stay by four days. Every day they're in there, it's about at least $10,000 a day. So you're saving a lot of money to the healthcare system. And the third part is we don't really know how much the drug costs. It's IV. The company's going to have to recoup their costs. They're going to spend up to a billion dollars to make just over a million and a half courses of drug. So we're only modeling them covering just enough of what it costs them to make the drug. So yes, we're paying for it, but I think it saves the system a lot of money by reducing the amount of time people are in the hospital. You're also anticipating that governments will want to stockpile uh, this treatment for future pandemics or future outbreaks. Um, At the same time, you're saying conservatively, you're going to assume zero revenues uh, beyond 2022. Is this going to be sort of the same? I mean, the way we should look at this drug, is it similar to Roche and Tamiflu in terms of the trajectory and then the leveling off? Well, it's a great question. I mean, what we're assuming is over the next year or two that there is some seasonality with the disease. So COVID goes away a little bit, then it comes back. But eventually we assume there's a vaccine, which is why we don't model revenues after 2022. Um, there typically is stockpiling. Stockpiling typically occurs at the very end of an epidemic or a pandemic. Um, so we do assume some stockpiling in the latter half of 2022 when um, the vaccine has sort of been more prevalent and been treated. Um, we just don't know how much the governments will want to buy. Maybe they will stockpile a little bit. Maybe they'll buy, um, you know, stockpile vaccines. We don't know what's going to happen quite yet. So we do model some stockpiling, but not significant. And that's what I would say is the big upside risk to having a whole thesis for Gilead is if the government starts stockpiling 500,000 doses. But remember, um, you know, the half-life or the, the shelf life of this drug may only be five years. We don't really know. So it may not be wise to stockpile that many doses, which is why we're not assuming that in our model. Um, just quickly, Robin, what's your number one reason why Gilead is not a buy right now? To be a buy, by our math, you would have to assume COVID would be a continuous revenue stream, like $3 billion every year, or 
cumulatively, they would have to sell $20 billion to $40 billion worth of drugs. Number one, we think that would be a very negative headline for the company. So we don't think that they'll do that. They'll price it at, at such. And number two, we just don't think, given that this is a hospitalized drug, um, we just don't see that many people getting the drug. Right now, the demand is much lower mm-hmm. um, than what they can make. Robin, great speaking with you. Thanks for your time. Welcome. Thank you. Robin Karnaskis of SunTrust. Guy Dami, what do you make of Gilead? Well, first of all, good for Robin. She stuck to her guns with the sell call. I mean, it must have been difficult. This stock rallied up to 85, as you know. Now here we are, you know, 72 or so. So that was a great call um, by them. I think, yeah, at least if, if nothing else in Gilead, you have something to trade against with $70 being your floor. But Gilead, as we've said countless times, they're, they're a victim of their own success. I mean, when you talk about what they did in the hepatitis world, and I don't think necessarily that you can bet the ranch on Gilead with remdesivir. So it's a trading stock here. You own it against 70 bucks, um, but there are better places to be in biotech, and we've said that for a while. I mean, we've actually said that Moderna and Gilead are cautionary tales in this world of uh, COVID-19, and that's proven to be correct. Tim? I think Gilead is, is uh, as Guy said, the HCV, uh, HIV, uh, these are things that have been slowly diminishing as pipelines. People have wanted to see them. They made the CAR-T acquisition, but it just is not enough. Um, I think the balance sheet's fantastic. I think the business is solid. I, you don't own it for, for remdesivir, and I don't think you own any of these companies for a vaccine. As we've, we've heard both between the economics, uh, the long-term uh, you know, forecasting, which is very challenging, and obviously the social factors. So, um, I, I, you know, I think Gilead is neutral here. Uh, I think there are risks around it, but their core business is solid with a, you know, with a core pipeline that is diminishing. So you don't need to chase anything. All right. Coming up, bank stocks catching a big bid today, posting their biggest gains in over two months. What one big bank CEO said that could signal more strength ahead. Plus, a surprise rise in home sales last month, giving home builders a boost today. We'll find out how that bodes for Toll Brothers as it gets ready to report tomorrow. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Up, up and away. Check out shares of J.P. Morgan surging today, as CEO Jamie Dimon said. J.P. Morgan is a very valuable company at these prices. So uh, we got to go to Karen on this one, obviously. And I say obviously because she's been a longtime holder of uh, J.P. Morgan and a huge fan of Jamie Dimon. Yes, I am a huge fan. Yes, I, want, I listened to um, listen to, to his presentation. Unfortunately, there was no video, so I just had to look at the poster that I already had. So, uh, but I did like what he had to say, and... You know, he's somewhat, he's pretty optimistic. He he pointed out a lot of things that are very different now than they were in financial crisis, how much better capitalized the the banks are, Um, how uh, the consumer is is hanging in there. He talked about, uh, I know that the credit quality now is better than it was. And he gave the example, you know, about one third of those that requested forbearance for housing um, didn't actually do it. And if you think about where the housing market is now, he said very few people are underwater. And so they, they are going to be paying their mortgage. Very different than the financial crisis where they were so underwater, it didn't matter if they paid. So with the valuation here, and I think also importantly, with the zero rates at the moment seeming to not be on the table, I think they can still earn a decent amount of money even for the second half of the year. But he did say it will take a very big charge for uh, the second quarter, which everyone expects. And so I think the credit quality will be enough so that the reserves will be adequate and, and they can still make money this year. 
I, so I, for all those reasons, and Jamie Dimon, I'm long. <laughs> Um, I got a guy because I I heard these comments from Jamie Dimon, and I thought that you would point out to the diamond bottom. Look at you. You called back in February, I think it was February 8th, uh, 2016. I think that was the day the S&P traded down to 1810 or so, and then Jamie Dimon came out when uh, J.P. Morgan was trading, I think, $53 a share and announced he had bought stock. PA, and that basically was the bottom. For, that was it, and the market never looked back. So he, he, has a, he has a knack of doing this, and maybe we'll look back and say the same thing in terms of the banks today. It's interesting. You know, Carter was right on the banks. The banks did crater. So was Dan. But we had Savita on, and she was bullish. She's going to turn out being right. What I've said for a while, what I continue to say, when J.P. Morgan said it was a $62, $62 tangible book, you put a 1.85 multiple on that, which is reasonable, and you have a $115 stock. I think that's where it's going, despite my view on the broader market. I like how Dan just shakes his head. I see that in the box. I see all of these guys in the box, even when they're not on your screen. I see them react, and Dan is shaking his head, no surprise. <laughs> well, well, first things first, Mel, I'm surprised you didn't ask Karen about Jamie Dimon's bottom. But um, interestingly enough, I, I mean, I, I hear that commentary. It sounds optimistic. Um, who am I to argue with Jamie Dimon, especially about his business and what he's seeing? I would just mention that, you know, we're three, four months into the worst economic crisis this country has seen in a generation. So to me, I hear comments like that, and, and it reminds me of things like, oh, subprime mortgages are contained. We have no idea what's coming. You tell me how their models look with 10% unemployment for a sustained period of time. Then I'll tell you what bank earnings quality is going to be going forward. And as far as the, you know, the stock is concerned, two weeks ago on Monday, I said it's probably the most important stock in the market. It went down to 80 from 90, and now it's back at 96 or so. Wake me up if this thing's up over 100 and it stays there, but I suspect we're going to see this thing pressing back towards uh, the low 80s in the next couple of months. All right. Coming up, losing its crown why one of our traders just shorted this ultimate stay-at-home stock. And later, the Dow is celebrating a big birthday today, but unlike our panel, it hasn't aged well. (laughs) We've got some ideas for how to freshen it up. Stay with us. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The streaming wars are, once again, heating up. HBO Max joins the party tomorrow out of a huge summer uh, for the space. Let's get to Julia Borson with all the details. Julia. That's right. HBO Max launches tomorrow with a deep library of movies as well as six new original exclusive shows. Though the service will be free for current HBO subscribers, it will cost $15 a month, which is $2 more than Netflix's most popular plan and more than twice the cost of Disney+. I asked Bob Greenblatt, chairman of Warner Media Entertainment and direct-to-consumer, about the service's timing and price. We're always going to be a little concerned, um, and we didn't expect this pandemic to be, you know, hitting us at this moment in time. Um, But we also really feel good about where HBO has been in this marketplace for so long at this price point. And what we're really giving people is all of the HBO service, but twice the content with all this new additional content. And so we feel good about the price point. 
On the upside, Greenblatt pointed to the fact that there's more demand for content than ever right now, and the fact that HBO Max is offering more content at the same price point as the current HBO service. He also said, despite production stoppages, that their content pipeline is in good shape until the fall. Now, parent company AT&T shares did gain about 3% today. They are down about 21% year to date. Melissa, back over to you. All right. Thank you, Julia. Julia Borson. Saying with the streaming space, one of our traders just shorted the ultimate stay-at-home play. So, Tim, why are you shorting Netflix? Well, first of all, yeah, I mean, look at look at Disney's subs. So Disney now in six to nine months since they launched Disney Plus now has one third of Netflix subs and, and they're doing it at a price point that, you know, may be more competitive. Uh, but but Netflix still is a major cash burn story. So because of COVID-19 and because of content that will be held back because of costs, they're actually going to probably still burn uh, north of a billion, but significantly less than the three point three billion they burned last year. And my guess is that 2021 will probably be somewhere in between the two. Um, I, I don't think you worry about it from a solvency perspective, but at some point this company needs to make money and the valuation just makes no sense. Uh, I get the fact and, and Reed Hastings has been uh, very outward about talking about the move from linear TV has room for everybody. He's actually been somewhat, you know, almost supportive of the competitive environment. But I think, you know, this is a case where Netflix and the surge that it had around COVID-19 because of this was absolutely pulled forward. And, yeah, I get the DAUs were were really impressive. Um, but those third quarter, third quarter comps uh, on, on content uh, and then some of those MAUs that were added become very, very difficult. So to be clear, to trade school this as a short position, I don't think you'd ever want to short Netflix as an index hedge or as a hedge of any kind. I think it needs to be priced appropriately. Um, but to me, being directionally short on uh, a position like this, uh, having stops in there, um, this is a stock I feel comfortable being short. Uh, I don't believe it will act rationally. And I do believe that when you put a, a stop on a stock like this, you can't have it tied too tight. So, you know, somewhere around 20, 25 percent, I think you can put a leash on this thing. Karen, what do you think of Tim's thesis? Uh, I like the thesis. Can I ask a question? Sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, Tim, let's say there is a vaccine tomorrow. Does Netflix go up or down? Hmm. Down. Do you want a fuller answer than that? So it's the stay. So it really is a stay-at-home stock. But guy, I mean, guy, what are your thoughts on on this short? Well, if you look, I mean, the, his level is right. This is the this 415 level is where we topped out, I think, late June, early July of 2018. So it makes sense from that parameter. It's gone down 8 percent from that 458 level in a straight line. So the momentum is behind him. And I think his risk reward sets up probably better now than it has for a while. But I think even Tim would agree that the thesis he brings forward is the same thesis that's been in the stock for a while. It yes. comes down to, I yep. think... Uh, is the competition is the competition such that their their first mover a huge lead that they have is that being whittled away? And I would still submit that it's Netflix and everybody else is playing for second and third place. Tim, you want to quickly respond? Yeah, I want to also just quickly clarify. I didn't short the stock today. I didn't short it yesterday. I shorted it about a month ago, uh, and I'm flat to down small on the trade. So to be clear, um, I think this is a stock that uh, the argument here has been one that's been out there for a long time. Netflix bulls are saying, this is great. This is exactly what I heard two years ago, and the stock went up. Although the stock actually, for the most part, until this last surge, had been sideways money. But but uh, my view is that this has been a catalyst, and I mean COVID-19 to Netflix, the competitive environment 
only gets worse. And you can't tell me that Netflix has the ability to raise prices here, or that at least they have the same ability they did two years ago. So that's part of the call. Quick, Dan, you, would you be with Tim on his short? Yeah, I think with defined risk, good risk management. I mean, listen, you know, net ads were declining in North America pre-pandemic. And with all this unemployment, how do you think it's going to look? It's probably going to trend lower in 2021. All right. Coming up, home builders raising the roof today. What is behind the strong move higher? Should you close in on one of these names? We've got the details straight ahead. Plus, Kramer is talking to the CEOs of Intuit and Corteva on Mad Money tonight. You don't want to miss those interviews. Top of the hour on Mad. Much more Fast Money back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got some good news on the housing front today. New home sales actually rose slightly last month. Analysts were expecting a 22 percent drop. And that surprise recovery could be good news for Toll Brothers. The home builder reports tomorrow after the bell. One option traders betting tomorrow's report could lay the foundation for big gains ahead. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. Toll Brothers traded four times the average daily options volume today. And right now, the options market is implying some pretty big moves right now implying about an 8.5% move after they report earnings. That's larger than the 6.4% or so that they've averaged over the last eight quarters. I would point out that the stock has disappointed seven of those eight quarters. But some of the activity we were seeing today was actually optimistic, looking for some upside. One of the trades I identified that I think was a good example of this was the September 33 calls. The buyer was paying about $3 for those. Given the stock's approximately $30 stock price right now, This bullish bet is basically betting that the stock is going to rise 20 percent or more by September expiration. That's about three and a half months from now. All right. Thank you, Mike. For more options action, you can watch the full show. That's every Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, we've got a very special celebration here on Fast Money tonight. Happy birthday to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Can you guess how many candles are on this cake this year? Stay tuned because the party continues next. Fast Money. We've got a big happy birthday to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The index turns 124 years old today, and a lot has changed since it was created on this day back in 1896. But has enough changed, or does this index need a serious makeover? Now, Tim, to our astute Fast Money viewers, they all know that we tend to gravitate towards the S&P 500 as opposed to the Dow, and for very good reasons. We do. And, you know, look, the Springsteen Glory Days uh, reference is probably right for the Dow. There's some chemicals. There's a lot of uh, kind of stodgy old world companies and a few new world, but a lot of oil, a lot of, a lot of industrial stuff that I, I think if we're looking at the new economy, things have totally changed. It's not entirely fair um, comparing it to the Nasdaq 100, but relative to the S&P, it's underperformed by about 600 basis points this year, and it continues to. All right. Well, our gift to the Dow on this uh, 124th birthday it is celebrating, we have decided to give it a big Fast Money fantasy makeover. Each trader has the one name that should be removed from the index and the one name that should replace it. So let's go around the horn here. Uh, Guy, I will go to you to start us. I understand the rules because I was paying attention earlier today. And I would suggest that in today's (laughs) world, to Tim's point, you don't need to big cap energy names. You have both Chevron and Exxon Mobil. I happen to think Chevron's a better company with respect, so I would eliminate Exxon Mobil and put it in a defense wow. company. You don't really have any defense names. Yeah, you have Boeing, you have Utex, but a pure defense play. Take out Exxon, throw in Lockheed Martin, 
and I think you're good to go. And if you can get me a haircut in the middle of that, it would be fine, Mel. It's pretty tight. Your hair is pretty tight, Guy. I mean, not, not too bad for pandemic, you know, pandemic standards. Uh, Tim Seymour? Yeah, so I, I'm going to throw travelers out of the Dow. And, and the reason for that is the day of the insurance companies transforming themselves into financial companies, the fall of Glass-Steagall, all of that was the last 20 years. Um, you think about net interest income trends for insurance companies, not going to be very good. So out with travelers, bring in PayPal. This is a $180 billion company that everybody knows about their global transactions, right. but it's a merchant aggregator. It, it's, it's effectively an online portal for a lot of small business. Uh, and this is a company whose best trends were probably last month in the most difficult market. Obviously, some of it helps them. So love PayPal here and it, absolutely a new economy stock. Karen, you're also going with new economy cutting edge. I am. Well, so I would be taking out 3M, which had a tough, a tough 18, tough 19, tough 20, but we'll, we'll give them a pass on the tough 20. And I do like they're making masks. So that's good corporate citizen. But I think there since GM, I think, was booted out uh, when they filed for bankruptcy. I don't, there isn't an automaker in there. And so if you want to add one, yeah, I think you kind of actually have to go with Tesla. Um, and so I, I don't know. Elon Musk might even reject being included in the stodgy old Dow Jones Industrial Average. But that's the one that I would do if you're looking for a makeover and to bring it into the modern era. All right. Dan, what do you say? Yeah, I'm in the same camp as these guys. I would be booting out IBM. Their, their revenues have been declining for the last 10 years. Um, and I'd put in a Salesforce.com, great CEO. Their revenues are growing 20% a year. That is the new economy. That is the new face of technology. And I just want to see if Guy can settle a bet between me and Karen. Um, you know, I bet that Charles Dow's <laughs> favorite cake at his first birthday was was carrot cake. Karen bet pound cake. So, Guy, we wanted to see if you could settle that for us because we know that you were there at the start of the Dow. <laughs> it was it was a miserable carrot cake and thank you for that dan i appreciate that all right karen you owe me 10 bucks <laughs> up next we got the final <laughs> trades <laughs> time for the final trade let's go around the horn karen Yes. First, I want to give a shout out to Karen Price in Chicago. She is a big fan of Fast Money and Mad Money. She watches them every day or she tapes them. And I'm a big fan of yours. Keep your spirits up, Karen. Thanks for watching. And my final trade, if this recovery has legs, short TLT. Tim. Check out that move in Brazil today. The EWZ, which is the ticker to play Brazil, uh, flying. If we get any reflation, Brazil is a place. A lot of this is going to be currency. And that's your friend. Take a look. Dan. Uh, yeah, retail, we talked about some of the performance in these stocks. I'd wait until the end of the week, get through some of these earnings. I think you sell the XRT. Sadly, there may not be a back to school, and it's going to be one of the worst Christmases in decades. Guy. You know, I speak Portuguese, Mel, but I'll spare you. But up in Portuguese is Twitter, T-W-T-R. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money starts right now.